Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hardtack Episode 3, The Great Emu War. I'm your host, Walla, and with me today are my co-hosts, Knight and Spartan. Hello, everyone. How's it going? We're doing quite all right. Hi. Doing quite all right. Excited. Very excited. Um, yeah. Today we have a special guest, Warwick, from the Australian Military History Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so glad to have you. Please take a moment to tell us and the listeners a bit about your podcast, how it came to be, and any information you'd like to share. G'day, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, so basically, for the last 30-odd years, I've been obsessed with all kinds of history, but specifically Australia's involvement in wars over the last 100 or so years. Um, I usually like to focus on the lesser-known battles and people uh, because I reckon everyone has at least heard of Gallipoli or Tobruk or the bombing of Darwin. But uh, how many people know about Elands River, Romani, Capion, Finshaven and the thousand other lesser-known battles which Australians have fought and died in? Uh, their stories are just as important as those who landed on Gallipoli and so I figured I'd tell them. Awesome. Thank you for that. Before we get into the episode, uh, we'd like to thank all of our supporters from both episodes one and two. Uh, we hope that episode three, we have some returning listeners as well as some new. The creation of this podcast has been a really enjoyable process for us thus far, and we hope that you have enjoyed it as much as we have. Thank you for your support. Let's get to it. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now put on your Kevlar, grab a cuppa and a Tim Tam, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Heart Attack. The world is in the midst of the Great Depression. Norway annexes Greenland. Iraq becomes an independent kingdom under Faisal. Japan and the Soviet Union reform their diplomatic connections. And Australia enters another great war. The Great Emu War. For this episode, the squad and I will be navigating the plains of Western Australia, where we will find a battalion, if you will, of hungry emus motivated to cripple Australia's food supply. All jokes aside for a moment, let's discuss how the Great Emu War came to be, how the onset of the Great Depression forced Western Australian farmers to increase wheat crop production, and how emus posed a significant threat to the food supply in the time of crisis. And worst of all, why it is known to be Australia's most infamous military failure in history. Despite the comedic connotations that always naturally arise when one thinks of the Great Emu War, or, quote, nuisance wildlife management military operation, end quote, um, there were very serious contributing factors which eventually led to the operation in the first place. 
notably factors that were largely a result of the Wall Street crash of 1929, which plays an important role in understanding the context behind this topic. If I may interrupt, I'm sorry. That's okay. I want to interrupt and ask a question with the quote that you inserted here, the nuisance wildlife management military operation. Where does that come from? That's such a good way to put it. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that was the official name for it before the media got hold of the, uh, and now correct me if I'm wrong, Warwick, but that was what it was called before um, the media got hold of the the news and called um, it the, the Great Emu War. Yeah, it, it sounds like something the bureaucracy would come up with to, to name it. So I'd say that's probably what it was called. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very technical sounding, right? Yeah. Very yeah. military. It's a, it's a lot of words to say something simple, which, yeah, that's yeah, very military. <laughs> so Australia relied heavily on its export industry, and due to the economic climate at the time, no one was buying any of our exports. So this meant that Australian farmers were suffering the most during the Great Depression. Most mm. of the Australian farmers in this case were discharged soldiers or soldier settlers from the First World War who had acquired land under the soldier settlement schemes administered by Australian state governments. The majority of the soldier settlers resided in Western Australia. Um, so throughout World War I, the Australian Imperial Force, known as the AIF, it rose to 60, 60 battalions on the Western Front and six light horse regiments serving in the Middle East. The battalions and regiments were set up along state lines. So, for example, the 1st Infantry Battalion was made up of blokes exclusively from New South Wales. The 10th Light Horse Regiment was made up of blokes from Western Australia and so on. Many of the men who joined the 10th Light Horse were the sons of established wealthy farmers from Western Australia, and so they all went off to war together. The upside to this kind of organisation was that a sense of identity was maintained, which made building the esprit de corps quite easy. The downside was that if a particular regiment had a particularly hard war, then entire communities could be affected. And this happened with the 10th Light Horse. They, along with the 8th Light Horse from Victoria, took part in the disastrous charge at the Neck on the 7th of August 1915. And out of 300 men of the regiment, 138 became casualties in two waves, about two minutes apart. Uh, 80 of them were killed. Oh, wow. And that was just the start of the war. Um, so for the remainder of the war they're still fighting they're still dying they're all coming from the same parts of western australia and so every every fatality and every wounding is one less able-bodied man to return to australia um to to work the farms basically wow and so you can imagine that the impact of that this would have after the war when these men came home with many of them carrying serious wounds um, i remember seeing one photo of a soldier settler in victoria who was bringing in his hay crop with one good arm and a hook on the other arm. And there would have been similar scenes all over, all over the place and in, and in the West. The land they were granted was billed as being land fit for heroes. And so to try and forge a decent future for themselves, many soldiers took up those grants. And mostly they were small lots of bigger holdings that had been broken up for the purpose, but it was all mostly virgin bushland. Particularly in areas of Western Australia, these subsoils had a very high salt content and the native vegetation had evolved to deal with this quite effectively. But then the farmers came in, knocked down all the native vegetation and planted shallow rooted crops. So the salt rose and many of the farms became unviable. And not only did the crops fail, but there was no native vegetation around for the local wildlife. And so they went looking elsewhere as well. And so all those factors, which were then exacerbated by the depression and the things Marla mentioned earlier, 
uh, actually made these soldier settlements tough places for the heroes, in inverted commas, to make a life for themselves. So I did have a question um, first about the lands that these heroes were given. Um, was there any decision-making process as to why they were given that particular land other than it may have been viable farmland? Not really. It was the better land closer to the coastline was probably already taken up by wealthy farmers. At that stage, we call them squatters because uh, they were families who were originally granted land when the European expansion across Australia was taking place. So they would have been very established, very wealthy um, properties, and the squatters who worked them would have had political connections. So they're not going to chop up their land to give to old soldiers. And so the land they were given was fairly marginal. Some of it is, isn't even farmed today with all the modern technology we have. It was destined to fail right from the start. Uh, and that makes sense. I guess the other question that I had about this was, it, you talked about, about how the native vegetation was tore up, and of course the local fauna and flora was affected by the farmers coming in and tearing that all up. Yep. Was there any like extinctions or extinctions or just endangered species at that point once that happened? Oh, there would have been, yeah. It's still going on. Unfortunately, at the moment, Australia has the highest extinction rate of uh, mammals anywhere in the world. No kidding. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's quite bad. So hopefully we can do something about it in time, but we're, we're losing species all over the place. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. So now that we have a little bit of context and background leading up to the war or operation, let's attempt to break everything we know about the conflict into a short timeline. So, basically, the Great Depression hits Australia. Uh, the You're welcome. Government... <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm kidding. Sorry um, about that, everyone. <laughs> I'm confused, though. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know, America. Okay. Thanks, no, oh, go yeah, on. that's right. Yeah, the Wall Street crash in America. Thanks, America. <laughs> exactly. It was, all, it was all America's fault. We'll blame them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, again, you're welcome, everyone. You're welcome. <laughs> I was like, you're welcome. I'm like, hang on a minute. Then I was like, oh, the depression in America. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Hey, we're here for you. We're here for you. <laughs> it's very appreciated. Then and always. Yeah, we, 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 have a modern, we have a modern saying where it's like, hey, my name is Mike. I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no. No. <laughs> anyway, Great Depression hits Australia. The federal government under PM James Scullion attempted to overcome the financial disaster by increasing the acreage under crop under the slogan, grow more wheat. So this encouraged farmers to expand upon production by offering a guaranteed price of four shillings per bush at railway sidings, which, lo and behold, was a promise that was not kept. Shocker. Um, Western Australian farmers responded well initially by increasing the area under wheat by approximately 158,000 hectares over the following 12 months. But as the wheat marketing bill attempted to pass through the Senate, the world wheat pri prices plummeted dramatically, thus being rejected further. So, you know, I, I'm just curious as to your thoughts, Warwick, on how the farmers um, would have responded to the government for not fulfilling this promise. That's fair to say they weren't happy, but they weren't stupid either. They knew they were the ones with the goods and that the government wanted those goods. 
And so they began harvesting their crops but told the government officials that they would refuse to sell the grain for anything less than the guaranteed price. And it probably would have worked, except a bunch of good-looking birds with long legs rolled in and messed everything, messed everything up. And isn't that always the way? Good-looking birds, that's a bit of a stretch. But yeah, that is the way, isn't oh, it? Oh, be- beauty's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> right. How dare you shame those birds? <laughs> Warwick is supposed to be on my side. No, it's right. <laughs> Um, Continuing on, Uh, so not only do we have uh, plummeting commodity prices, um, and at this stage also intermittent drought, we also had overproduced crops that cannot have been sold like promised, Um, the value of wheat was dropping, all occurring whilst in the middle of the largest economic crisis in history. In come the emus. Ever so conveniently, whilst the world was literally coming down on these poor farmers, in came the emus and their unforgivable bloodthirst for the great wheat conquest of Australia. Or migration, however you want to call it. To put it short and sweet, emus in Western Australia usually migrated westwards, away from the dry inlands after breeding, um, more toward the coastal areas. However, due to the larger soldier settlements and WA and the extension of agriculture with its naturally associated clearing of timber and the provision of new water supplies for livestock, it provided pretty attractive habitats for the migratory birds, if you can call them birds. Uh, I mean, they don't even fly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> dumbest <laughs> birds to ever exist. I have a question. It's cruel. <laughs> so you mentioned the, the the great wheat conquest of Australia or migration. Was it was it was this typically just a normal part of their migratory pattern? This this westward migration away from the the drier inland areas. So as far as I understand, it wasn't usually. Um... The way that they would migrate towards but because of the uh the soldier settlements coming up and there was um much bigger lands and all these uh all the wheat coming up from uh, i think I, I mentioned earlier about how they're um producing more wheat um because they were expecting to sell more it kind of i suppose heightened their senses i don't know and kind okay. of attracted all the emus in in that certain direction um correct me if i'm wrong Warwick. maybe you know a bit a little bit more yeah. about it than i do but um it, it sounds about right but um it's, it seems to be an instinct of most Australian animals to know where there is water. So as if you're going through a, uh, an extended drought period, the, the more marginal areas will dry up and the animals just seem to know to move somewhere else. Yeah, not like the big wildebeest migrations of, of Africa, but they do tend to sure. sort of move to where they know there's going to be water and, um, and food. So, so you've got the drought happening and this just so happened to coincide with the wheat campaign that was occurring. Yep. Oh, perfect storm. Perfect storm. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of meant that there was a abundance of these, I like to call them discount ostriches. <laughs> <laughs> Look. So much cool. hate. So much hate. And lots of <laughs> Considering, you know, as I mentioned just before, the Grow More Wheat campaign was in effect, and as Warwick mentioned, the emus were looking for water, essentially. So, yeah, this was like feeding candy to a baby emu with all these wheat fields and all the water. It's like they were congregating in one area. Anyway, so... Sweet. Imagine this, a battalion of an estimated 20,000 
six foot flightless hungry birds uh, are mustering their forces on the West Australian front. And in this case, I believe the Campion and Walgulan, the Walgulan region. Walgulan, um, that sounds about right. Yeah, uh, ready to infiltrate all of the wheat fields. Um, so, but little did they know they were about to face overworked, overtired, and undervalued from the government retired World War One vets armed with Lewis guns. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the previously mentioned nuisance wildlife management military operation, um, I'm going to ask the question we all want to know the answer to. Why the hell didn't the pre-existing fence keep out the emus in the first place? Well, those fences were designed primarily for keeping out the small furry critters like rabbits and dingoes and not large flightless birds that can hook along at about 50 kilometres an hour and that's a bit over 30 miles an hour in the old money. So they're running along you. happily. You're welcome. <laughs> they're, they're running along they're happily oblivious to the wire and timber constructions in their path. And they pretty much just plough straight into them. And if you get enough of them ploughing into the same bit, and they would tear gaps in the fences. So then not only can the emus get through, but so could the rabbits and the dingoes. And so it was a bit of a double whammy for the farmers who ended up with emus and rabbits destroying their crops, as well as the drought. And these farmers are these these World War One vets on Heroes yep. Land, correct? Yep. Yep. <laughs> so here, here we have crippled World War World War One vets struggling to get by on on Hero Land that, yep. as you mentioned, has already kind of been difficult for them, given that the native the native uh, flora had been ripped out. Yep. And now you've got emus, rabbits, and dingoes ravaging the land even further. Yeah. Yeah, so not not a good position to be in. Good God, no. <laughs> and, and you know, I I just want to mention here, you know, if if it wasn't for the with the for the emus, you know, I don't think the rabbits and the dingoes would have gotten in, right? No, no, the um, the rabbit fence and the dingo fence are all uh, they're still in place, still in no, place I, today, it, and they they work quite well. It, <laughs> so, I mean, th this is borderline like combined arms tactics. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you could see it that way, yeah. Just imagine, yeah. like, a congregation of, like, fucking emus and rabbits and dingoes yeah. just coming together. Yeah. War planning on a sand table. <laughs> the Australian the, the Australian version of awe and... What what those? Um, shock and awe. Shock and awe. Right. Shock and awe. <laughs> it was a blitzkrieg. Well, blitzkrieg! Pretty That's much. Oh. Pretty much. Uh, this is where the Nazis really, really came out with their, their, their tank followed by light infantry strategy. This is it. I am full on board that emus are like neo-Nazis or some shit. No, they predated. They predated. Oh, goodness. They knew it was coming. Anyway. They did. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about the official operation itself. So what we know so far is the emus have been relentlessly destroying hectares upon hectares of wheat crops, costing Aussie farmers who are already struggling with millions of pounds worth of lost crops and damages. Something had to be done. And keeping in mind that these farmers were almost all veterans of the Great War, and as any former soldier will tell you, it doesn't matter if you no longer wear the uniform, you're still a soldier and you still think like a soldier in a lot of ways. And so all these soldiers who were facing the same problem looked for a military solution. And to them, the solution was machine guns. Yes. Yep. And you can see why from a soldier farmer point of view, why they were keen to bring in machine guns to take care of the emus. 
as most of them had witnessed firsthand the destructive power of the machine guns during the war, as their mates were getting bowled over by them at an industrial rate. And some of them had even been on the wrong side of that power themselves. And if they were half as effective against emus as they were against soldiers, the problem would be taken care of in no time. The weapon of choice was the Lewis gun. Yeah, so the, the farmers thought to themselves, who do we need to contact to get a couple of Lewis guns out here? And not once for beating about the bush, no pun intended, they went straight to the top. Sorry, I just... <laughs> you like that one? <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> Please continue. Um, yes, so they, they went straight to the top um, to the Minister of Defence, uh, Sir George Pearce. Pearce thought long and hard, or possibly not at all, and decided to send a crack unit of emu assassins to take care of the problem. Actually, he just ordered the army to take care of it. <laughs> I thought it was fascinating because I was actually reading into something about how, like, um, uh, someone was saying how, like, why didn't they just go to the Minister of Agriculture? Like, why did they go straight to the Minister of Agriculture? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, so, this is a, a very good question. <laughs> very good question. <laughs> Call in the army. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All else fails, get the army to sort it out. <laughs> Yeah, why they didn't go to the agriculture department, I've got no idea. Okay. It's funny. I, I see that uh, I, I'd found, and the very limited research that I did on this topic, uh, because, again, I, I'm really enjoying the, the audience uh, role that I, I've been able to take here. George Pierce, as you mentioned, uh, ordered the army to, to, to call the population. Uh, but apparently, uh, later on, he was called the Minister of the Emu War in Parliament by a, a Senator James Dunn. Now, I don't, I don't yep. know who that is, but um, what a title. Yep. What a title. <laughs> Minister for Emu Wars. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how far it went. Yeah, they'll, they'll take the piss in Parliament. It was fantastic. <laughs> I said that earlier, how, like, yep. <laughs> like even yep. official, like, politicians in Parliament were like, fuck it. Minister for yep. the Emu War. Let's do it. Like, oh my god. Yep. That's great. <laughs> it's so insulting. <laughs> it is, isn't it? He was he was actually the um the Minister of Defence at the outbreak of the war. He's he played a large role in um in Australia's initial response to to World War One. So, oh, so he had a bit so of a fair bit of Yeah. George yeah. Pierce. Yeah. So he went from Minister of Defence and World yeah. War One to yeah. the, the, the pedestal he was placed upon as the Minister of the Emu War. Yep. What a Rise, disservice. Rising to the top. Oh, yes. <laughs> Goodness. Uh, My career. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good thing to be known for. Um, yeah, so he actually just ordered the army to take care of it. and um, But... Who would you send? So most of the Australian army had been discharged after the war. And so there's only a pitifully small nucleus of full-time professional soldiers. And really, none of these could be spared for a bit of animal control. There was, however, a militia scheme across the country. Part-time soldiers who would get together a couple of weekends here and there, have a bit of a social gathering and talk about the good old days of the Great War. But by 1932, many of the high standards of the AIF had slipped. So some sources I've found say that elements of the 7th Heavy Artillery Battery took part, while other sources tend to suggest there were only three main players in this drama. And because I can't find mention of any of the others, I'll just introduce you to the three. Um, it's a constant struggle for people like me who try to find out who's who in the zoo back then, because the standard practice was to use only their initials and their surname. 
So searching can be a bit tricky. But here they are, as best as I can tell. So leading the show was Major G.P.W. Meredith. The only record I've found is of a Captain Gwynedd Purvis Meredith. Apologies to the Welsh community for my butchering of that name. What a name. Um, oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, he, he served with the 36th Heavy Artillery Brigade during World War I. So our bloke in 1932 was serving with the 7th Heavy Artillery Battery, and so it's fairly likely we've got the right bloke. Uh, he joined the AIF on the 27th of August 1915 and discharged on the 27th of January 1920. So he served for a fair percentage of the war. And the fact that there is very little recorded about him suggests that he didn't shine above the, above the others. Uh, but by the same token, nothing bad is recorded either. So it's likely he did his job well, but did nothing to really bring himself to the attention of his superiors. Uh, he was a major at the time of the EMI war. And so it would be safe to assume that even though he is listed as discharged in 1920 at the rank of captain, he must have joined the militia where he was promoted to major sometime in the intervening years. Can, can I insert a question yep. here, if that's yep. all right? Yep. Uh, do the Australian army ranks uh, yep. mirror that of more Western or even American ranks? Because when I, when I hear captain, you know, um, and, and modern day, Yep. American military, you've got your second lieutenant, followed by your first lieutenant, followed by captain, followed by major. So 01, yep. 02, 03, 04. Is, it, is that uh, consistent with the Australian, at least officer ranks in this case? Yeah, yeah. So I don't think we've got a, I think we might have a sub-lieutenant. I don't think we call him a first lieutenant. So we have sub-lieutenant, okay. lieutenant, captain, major, and okay. so on. That's right. I think the, the ranks are fairly fairly similar. Okay, great. Um, and the non-commissioned ranks uh, pretty much the same. You get private, lance corporal, corporal sergeant. Um, I think you guys have first sergeants. Yeah, we do. Uh, with, with you saying corporal and lance corporal, that that more sounds like uh, our our Marine Corps than it does our Army. Uh, oh, okay. Army is going to be uh, private, private second class, private first class. Specialist is your E four or uh, your lance corporal, unless I'm making a mistake there. Uh, okay. And then sergeant is your your E five. Um, but this, this sounds more similar to the Marine Corps ranks. That we okay, have. yeah. So I'd say our Lance Corporal and Corporals would be your private first class. and. Okay, so E3 and yeah. E4. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. So then gotcha. after where you go into first sergeant and that, we go into warrant officer, class one, class two. Oh, yeah, that's a whole separate ranking system for us, uh, the warrant oh, okay. officers. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, so the major would have started his career as a, a lieutenant and um yeah worked his way up to major via captain great thank you so, for that clarification yep and just um i don't know if you picked up on the different pronunciation there you you blokes call it yes l l lieutenant, uh, we, lieutenant we call it, yeah yeah we call it we call it lieutenant yeah we we, yeah. we usually just refer to him as as lt yeah <laughs> yep it's also easier when you're writing it down because i can i can never spell it it's a, yeah. it's a weird <laughs> It's a weird spelling. I'll just put LT. <laughs> uh, very, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's a, it's French, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's come along. Um, a lot of a lot of French words in English. So it was just one of them that came along. Yeah. So yeah, we follow the the British convention and and call it lieutenant. Unless of course they're in the navy, then we call it lieutenant. So yeah, it's totally different. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, you know what? The navy is its yeah. own monster, and they do their own thing. So uh, yeah, good for, yeah, we, good for them. We, we don't talk about the navy. <laughs> 
No, there's no need. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to we'll get to the navy later in a couple different episodes. Yep. But right now, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, so the the next bloke was Sergeant S. McMurray. Uh, same problem as Meredith. He had very little informa- very little information on him. Um, I found two McMurrays whose first names start with S, but only one who doesn't have a second initial. And this is Samuel McMurray, an engine driver who signed up in Brisbane on 7th of June, 1915, and he was assigned to artillery. His father lived in Western Australia, so it's likely that our bloke went back to his father's place after the war. And I can't tell you much more about him because I don't even have a, a discharge date. The Australian War Memorial has his final rank as a gunner, so again, it's fair to assume he joined the militia after the war and rose to the rank of sergeant by the time he was assigned to join Meredith. And the third bloke in this team is Gunner J. O'Halloran. Um, unfortunately, I've not been able to find anything which would confirm who J. O'Halloran was. I found a couple of James and a couple of Josephs, but nothing which links any of them to artillery or emus. It may well be that he was a, a young fellow who had joined the militia after the war, and so the war memorial has no record of him. It's often reported that the Australian Army went to war against the emus, but in reality, it was these three blokes who were sent out to cull some birds. So please don't think that this is in any way reflects the standard operational levels of the Australian Army. Please, please don't think that. No, and you know what? <laughs> Anyone who's versed in military history knows better. You know, <laughs> again, this is a topic that that I think uh, a lot of times we like to reference or make fun of, and and yep. <laughs> because it's lighthearted for the most part. But in reality, the contributions of the Australian military, the Australian Army, to to yeah. both world wars and in between yeah. interwar years, yeah. the the Allies couldn't have done what they did without the contributions of small nation armies such as the Australian Army. Yeah. And, and I tell you what, the tenacity, the tenacity of the Australian Army it's, stands yeah. alone. Yeah, through World War One, especially, they were... Right. They, they, right. they came to be sort of the nucleus of the British Army. Um, they did. As far as, the, as far as the attacking, the pointy end, basically. Yeah, for the, from the 8th of August onwards, uh, 8th of August 1918 onwards, they were pretty much at the forefront of the advance. Um, and just kept the Germans off balance and kept pushing them and pushing them. Even yeah. even in American history books, and I'm not talking about school books, but if you if you pick <laughs> up a real history book, yep. the Australian the Australian Army and their contributions are often referenced. Um, and, and similarly, a little shout out to the Canadians out there because oh yeah, Canadians, say, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean Canadians are just cold Australians, really. Yeah. <laughs> we got... It's one of the best descriptions I've ever heard. <laughs> Uh, we've got a very very similar history and a very similar outlook on things. Um, I absolutely but, agree. Yeah, um, yeah. They, both they just both do, wonderful populations. Yeah, they just, they just do it in the snow. We, they we do, do it, it in the, the snow. <laughs> <laughs> we do it in fire, they do it in the snow. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> okay, yeah, so our, our intrepid warriors set forth with two Lewis guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. And come rain, hail or shine, they were going to face the enemy. Uh, maybe not rain. They were supposed to head out in October 1932, but it was raining, and so the Great Offensive was delayed. But by the 2nd of November, with clear skies, it was time for round one. So a little bit of rain will, will put, <laughs> stop the Australian <laughs> Army in its tracks. Um, yeah, yeah. 
It did back then, but not when I was in. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No. <laughs> it, it's funny to go from fire to rain. Uh, yep. Little James Taylor reference there. But uh, okay. <laughs> hey, you know what I'm talking about. But no. Um, yep. So, question if it can be answered. Yep. What about the rain set the offensive off? I would say more, it would have turned the, the ground uh, fairly muddy, I'd say. And um, the transport options back then weren't weren't great makes sense yeah, so it's a, it's and... a terrain uh terrain consideration yeah yeah i'd say the area around there would be fairly flat ground so any rain that fell particularly heavy rain would probably just sit and um just turn it all to, to mud really okay. so okay. mobility mobility would have been the the problem i'd say not great. not not the fact that they didn't want to get wet no no, no. It, <laughs> it, it, it it might have been <laughs> Yeah. You never know, but at the same time, I mean, I I don't know about the Australian Army and you served, but you know, in the American Army, we say if it's not raining, we're not training. That's so. it. Yep. Yeah, we used to say. <laughs> okay. The, the the rain adds ten percent to the training value. It it absolutely does because yep. it's realistic, it's unpredictable, and uh, yep. for the most part, and it's so, uncomfortable okay. and it's cold. <laughs> But, right, yeah. but the mobility, the mobility factor, especially uh, given the year that that this occurred, uh, yeah. would have been a huge, huge issue. Yeah, yeah. So just, and just you also have out. to think about like, it's just you have to think about also like emus because if it's raining, then they probably aren't going to be so much out and about. Whereas you want to kill as many emus as possible. Yeah, so you want to have a sunny day. Yeah, that's a fair point. So it's not yeah. just mobility of of you know living, breathing, thinking uh, individuals. Yeah, uh, humans. Yep. <laughs> we're talking yeah. about we're talking about the emus going. Uh, <laughs> at least yeah. if they're as organized as we think, there there are going to be issues with traction. There are going to be issues for yep. for <laughs> animal populations, which is yeah. really weird consideration to to even bring into the picture but i'm really glad you mentioned that because i'd have never i'd have never thought of that yeah they're they're quite smart so they would have been just hanging out just you know taking it easy really on the 2nd of november there were reports received that about 50 birds had been seen in the campion region they were out of range of the lewis guns and so the local farmers were called in to try and herd the emus towards the guns and i don't know if you've ever seen emus in the wild um I would think that herding cats would be an easier proposition. The, the okay. flocks split up into smaller groups, and so any hopes of pouring fire into the huddled masses was soon dashed. Uh, now, this this would be instinctual, but it almost seems organized. Yeah, sort of. So I, I, um, I'm not trying to make a joke here. For for yeah. them to see that they're try, that, that they're that, that they're being herded. Yeah, um, well, I mean, for them to divide to like say, that, it just I, seems I mean, very. Uh, you have to think of the, time, of the survival, the survival there. Exactly. You have to think about like these are used to like predators. So you, you know, they have to adapt to avoiding predators and how to divert predators. Sometimes splitting up really is the best option. So right, that way right. a predator can give up. So, yeah. The emu's main predator would be like wild dogs, dingoes and that sort of thing. So yeah, like you say, the, the, best protection would be to scatter in all directions and just outrun them. That's pretty much what they're doing here. <laughs> um, and they can cover a lot of ground. They're, they're so quick. Well, yeah, going back, you said 30 kilometers, right? Uh, uh, 30 miles. 30 miles, so 50 kilometers an hour. 50 kilometers. Yeah. So uh, it's... emus are fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. It's okay. Look, <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not trying to praise the emu. I'm just <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Um and and it puts into perspective the challenges that the Australian army had at the time. It really does. Yeah. Cuz you're talking you're talking about birds that were able to divide, not to conquer necessarily, but to divide yeah. for survival. Yeah. Yep. And do so at such a rapid, instinctual rate. Yeah. Yeah, so all the um, the farmers, they would have been on foot. So, you know. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah it's been near impossible, so. What a challenge. Yeah. But, yeah, they, they did manage to kill some during the first encounter and later in the day. And Meredith reported they'd killed perhaps a dozen. So hardly Jeez. an auspicious start, but from little things, big things grow sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. 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 Yeah. They went out again about two days later, and this time Meredith decided to outthink the birds. And what better way to get a large number of them in one place than at a waterhole? Uh, a local dam was selected, and sure enough, around a thousand emus graced them with their presence. They waited until the birds were well within range and then opened fire. And a dozen birds were killed, but then the gun jammed. And so oh, those that had not on. been shot scattered as wild animals tend to do when they hear sudden loud noises and no other emus were sighted that day no yes so even the technology of the time was letting them down oh, it's uh, just a bit of bad luck <laughs> it is <laughs> yeah. so i mean lewis guns are uh fairly known for their reliability so to have right. one jam up on them <laughs> it's yeah, just bad the luck element, the element of surprise was there yeah they could have done well but uh yeah <laughs> The gun let wow. them down on this occasion. So, hey, well, wh whoever the unit armorer was did not clean the weapon properly. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. <laughs> so it was probably one of the blokes who'd never seen one before. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, but, there you go. Yep. yep. And then uh, someone reported that there were emus to the south, and they were supposedly fairly tame. And so Meredith took his team south, but he had very little success. Maybe, thought he, mobility is the problem, and these birds are pretty quick after all. And this is the age of the motor car, so surely we can mount a gun on a truck and chase them down. Tell me more. Tell me more about that. <laughs> it, it was a great idea, except the fact that the emus could outrun the truck pretty easily over rough ground. And the ride was so rough that the gunner's attention was solely dedicated to just hanging on and not ending up as a bloody smear on the side of the road. And so he, he, he could even fire as the, as the truck was driving along. So, so here, here we have the second instance of terrain being a factor. Yep. So I don't know if you've ever driven in a car that's got four-wheel uh, leaf spring suspension. Yes. Yeah, it's got no give in it. So the, <laughs> no. the ride, the ride over rough ground would have been absolutely punishing. So oh, man. to expect a bloke to hang onto a gun and fire while he's been thrown around like that. <laughs> it no, just... he was, he was set up for failure. Oh yeah, no, no chance of working. Uh. So. An odd question. Was there like any field expert over the emus? Because like there's got to be like some scientist working with the wildlife here. Right. I would think. So like did they never just consider to consult somebody on like who has emu knowledge or was that even not even knowledge then? I don't know. There was a lot of um, study done on emus by that stage. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's that have been enthusiasts. Yeah, botany enthusiasts going around having a look at them, and uh, but I don't know if there's any real sort of research done on their habits and and the best ways to go about um, containing them. So, I mean, which is Thank fair. You. I mean, you're you're going from World War One where you're fighting predictable 
to to an extent yep. human human enemies to uh, now we need to be well versed and and the 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 biology but also the habits and the the the, the study of a species that we we can observe but we can't subjectively learn anything about because they're not speaking uh intelligent creatures yeah what yep. what a difficult situation to be placed in it is and one of the other shortcomings of the the lewis guns in this situation was uh it was designed to mow down rows of men who were coming on right fairly straight so it was a very direct line of fire whereas you guys would know that modern machine guns are designed to spread the rounds over a larger area Correct. So, so, but these ones, you know, you'd put 20 rounds in the same spot, which is, you know, 20 rounds into one bird is, is not an effective way to go. But um, <laughs> because it didn't spread the rounds around over, over an area, um, you had to be really accurate with your shot. Um, right. So, yeah. So you're looking at, you're looking at World War One, where you had lines of men, you know, trench warfare here, yep. which is, you know, really what the, the, the gun was designed for. Yep. Um, but it it wasn't designed to predict a a sporadic animal instinctual response of divide for survival. Yep. Um, no, it was just totally unsuited for that kind of that kind of use. So, which uh, leads you to wonder when you're when you're looking at World War One tactics, why why didn't infantrymen in a line yeah. divide for survival the same way yep. that the emus did? Yeah. It's... Um, Oh my! Yes, they they call it discipline, but um, you know, <laughs> there, there's di there's yeah. discipline, and then there's blind obedience to oh. stupid rules. So you know, <laughs> say it uh, again. Good night. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so after about six days, uh, the shenanigans were starting to generate some attention, and not all of it was favourable. Uh, one of the army observers reported, "Quote: Each pack seems to have its own leader now." A big black-plumed bird, which stands fully six feet high, and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction, warns them of our approach. End quote. So basically, wow. the, the emus are getting organised. <laughs> apparently, intelligent display of behaviour here. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll have one one keeping lookout, and uh, when the army rolls up, yeah, <laughs> right, right, out, right, out, lads, it's time to scatter. <laughs> So we're facing oh. a very, very intelligent, uh, crafty enemy. Clearly, <laughs> to an extent, potentially. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, okay. I'm not going to bring you around on that, am I? <laughs> never. <laughs> never. I'll never conform. Ah, uh, conformity sucks. But anyway. <laughs> so by the eighth of November, two and a half thousand rounds have been fired with anywhere from 50 up to 500 birds being accounted for. So it's not much to show for their efforts thus far. And so, in true Australian fashion, the mickey was begun to be taken without mercy. An ornithologist, Dominic Cerventi, said that the machine gunner's dreams of point-blank fire into serried masses of emus was soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units made use of the military equipment uneconomic. A crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. End quote. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's brutal. <laughs> it's damning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
the, the crestfallen field force withdrew. <laughs> oh my goodness. What a narrative. <laughs> uh, beautifully like worded. Yeah. Uh, it, sound, it sounds that way. <laughs> yep. He was, he was on the... <laughs> He was on that side. Um, he was on the wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> he should have been tried for treason. God damn. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were even having a go in the federal parliament. Um, Pierce was becoming known as the minister for the Emu War. And when somebody asked, and somebody asked if a medal would be struck to commemorate the conflict, and no. the Labor, Labor MP, A.E. Green, said that they should go to the Emus who seem to have won every round so far. So, so this is in the federal oh. parliament, federal parliament of Australia. <laughs> on this, so. the, the amount of shade, the amount of shade to use the 21st century <laughs> term. Oh my God. Yep. Parliament too. Like that's unbelievable. Yep. yep. Just be, yeah. Men in their, in their suits and ties and all their, all their bluster. Was, yeah. was a medal struck to commemorate no. the conflict. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I'm talking after the fact. I mean, there's typically a medal and a ribbon for every everything. Yeah, yeah. Were the individuals, uh, the, the, the Australian military service members that, that participated, were they in any way compensated or, or, or memorialized for their, for their efforts? And, <laughs> and I'm not talking about, you know, valor and war, but, you know, going over the top if you will yeah. but this was still a huge issue for australia as a as a nation yep yeah no they got nothing <laughs> good god man but it's simply nothing <laughs> nothing at all <laughs> except the fact we're still talking about it yeah 90 years later hey so, sweep it under the rug yeah. everybody move on okay <laughs> but they got they got notoriety <laughs> yeah. oh okay and you get the impression that even meredith is starting to see the funny side of things so in his report thus far, he noted that his force had suffered no casualties. And he <laughs> compared the emus to the Zulus, stating, quote, They can face the machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus who even dum-dum bullets could not stop. End quote. Ouch. <laughs> so on the 8th of November, Pierce ordered them to withdraw. And that was the end of round one. And the honours went to the emus. <laughs> It was, it, was it was a forced retreat. It was a forced retreat. <laughs> yep. The Minister of Defence went, nah, that's enough. <laughs> oh, no. Yep. But unfortunately for Pierce and the, uh, and the army, the problem hadn't been solved. The emus were still decimating the farmers' crops, and so the farmers again asked Pierce for support. The West Australian Premier, James Mitchell, threw his weight behind the second request, and together with the report on the initial attempt stating 300 had been killed, Pierce consented to a second attempt on the 12th of November. He advised the Premier that the Army would supply the guns, but the West Australian Government was to provide the personnel. Uh, the big problem was that there apparently weren't enough experienced machine gunners over in the West, uh, which seems a little bit sus to me. You've got this huge population of former soldiers coming back from the war, and none of them could use a machine gun? I, I, uh, I doubt that. That doesn't track. That doesn't no, track. It's, it's more likely the uh, West Australian Premier didn't want to be involved <laughs> right <laughs> didn't, didn't want to be held responsible for anything like that just this has yeah. been an embarrassment already i'm going to uh politely uh, yep <laughs> no thank you to the invitation yes <laughs> yes P please come and help us but i'm not going to do it <laughs> so with nobody else available 
on the 13th of November, Major Meredith took to the field again in an attempt to redeem himself. And it must be said that on the first couple of days, things went okay. Not spectacular, but okay. They managed to kill about 40 emus. And by the 2nd of December, they were starting to experience a relative amount of success, averaging about 100 birds per week. And by the 10th of December, Meredith was able to claim 986 kills for the cost of 9,860 rounds. And does anyone else find it a bit strange that it's exactly a 10 to 1 ratio? Well, you mentioned the Lewis gun being very accurate as opposed yeah. to a spread. So they're yeah. pumping roughly 10 rounds, 10 rounds into each kill. Into each bird, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe he was just making it up. One shot wasn't enough. They had well, to be from sure. The, from the amount, of, <laughs> the amount of rounds expended for the kill, they reckon it was a 10 to 1. So... They didn't necessarily put 10 bullets into each bird. It's just for every 10 bullets fired, they managed to hit one. <laughs> well, it's not like the other side could come forward and say, hey, hey, you know, our KIA were numbered at and the wounded in action were. Yeah, yeah you know. <laughs> How so, many birds went on with rounds <laughs> for the remainder well, of their life embedded well, in their yeah. flesh? Yeah. Well, he also had the claim that around 2,500 birds that had been wounded would later go on and die of their injuries. So they so they've been shot, but they've run off and, and died somewhere else where they wouldn't were unable to be found. So okay, you know, okay, maybe it took them two or three days to die or something like that. So so there's, there's, there there is some some you know uh, uh, redeemable casualty count there. Yeah, yeah. So they've definitely so, better second time round than the first time. Right, definitely. Odd question though, like when they when the birds died, did they do anything about them, or did they just leave the carcass there? For the most part, they just sort of left the carcasses. But um, quick diversion on the makeup of the Australian Army, uh, World War One. You had the infantry and you had the light horse. So the light horse were mounted infantry that rode the horses to battle to the place of battle, dismounted, and then fought as infantry. And their distinguishing, the distinguishing part of their uniform, was their slouch hat had an emu feather in it, um, and still does today. Um, so a lot of the uh, birds that were killed their feathers were harvested to help make the, um, the slouch hats for the light horse regiments. So they, they weren't oh, okay. to- yeah, they weren't totally just left there and for no purpose. Um, they, got, they got their feathers off them and that was about it, really. That's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, our, we still have some light horse regiments in the Australian Army now and they, they still wear the, the emu plume. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's about the only use they had for the, for the dead birds. Yeah, so with with all these numbers getting a little bit better, they started to get a bit of positive press. And the, the Coolgardie Miner, the newspaper, in 1935, three years after the war started, they stated that, uh, quote, the use of machine guns was criticised in many quarters, but the method proved effective and saved what remained of the wheat, end quote. So it was a bit of a mixed bag, really. The first attempt was, without a doubt, a failure. But the second time around saw a bit more success. Uh, but with the erstwhile enemy still numbering in the tens of thousands, taking out, yeah, at best guess, about 3,000 was not a worthwhile return and had very little long-term impact. So all in all, it was a bit of a, uh, all up, it was a bit of a failure. And the army was requested to help out again in 1933, 1943 and 1948. But once bitten twice shy, all the requests were knocked back. I have a question about that. So here yep. we have 1933... Uh, a year later, 1943, 11 years later, and then even all the way into 1948. So was the emu problem 
as persistent in these years as it was originally or yeah. in 1943 considering this is mid uh if not near the height really of world war ii mm-hmm. to, to call in the army for a a national problem that involves wildlife yeah. i'm sure in 1943 the personnel simply just couldn't be spared no they, they, they wouldn't have been but um also you know as you say it's the peak of the war and right. so the population needs to be fed <laughs> and the soldiers need to be fed and um, with shipping lanes around the world being dangerous, uh, oh, we'd have course. to have to provide for ourselves. And um, although there wouldn't have been the military personnel to spare, it would have been a very important need to control these birds just to just to keep the soldiers fighting, really. No, and that I, I, that's such a great point. That's such a great point because even even looking at the Pacific campaign against Japan, and not to divert too far, yep. but when you look at World War Two, nineteen forty three, the Pacific campaign. Uh, Australia, uh, for the American military, was such... Uh, you guys were crucial allies yeah, into yeah. the Pacific Drive. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we had uh, hundreds of thousands, probably a million uh, American troops um, coming through Australia on their way to the to the Pacific Theatre. So, right. um, yeah, all those men had to be fed and supplied as well. So They did, um, they did. So yeah. I can see why 1930, uh, you know, 1943 would have been such a highlight year. Mm. Uh, and, and for 1943, again, personnel being an issue, but for that request to have been knocked back at that time, that must have been a difficult decision. And I'm sure a real major point of contention amongst the, the, the Australian parliament, but uh, even outside in the, within the military. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those, one of those hard calls to make, you know. You need them in elsewhere, but you also need to feed them. So, <laughs> but that's a problem. You know, countries all around the world were facing at that stage. Uh, yeah, so they were all knocked back. But um, there was a, a far more effective system was introduced, whereby a bounty was paid to the locals for every bird they killed. So, in six months during 1934, there were over 57,000 bounties were claimed. Wow. Um, so that's yeah. We consider that the the best that the army could do was about 3,000. You know, 57,000 bounties, it's a much more effective way. I'm not sure how much they were paid for each each bird, but um, it probably worked out a lot more cost-effective. And and there was a more effective fence put in place to try and keep the birds out of the region in the first place, so they didn't do so much damage. Um, the, the bounty and the fence put together sort of solved the problem to a large degree. And so they, that's basically uh, the, the emu war. So realistically, in the end... We still won, <laughs> which is later down the track. Oh, <laughs> oh I don't know. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll call it a draw. It. <laughs> it, we'll call it a draw. The, 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 the emu's got the moral victory. They truly did. They truly did. <laughs> moral, uh, moral victory. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and again, I don't, I don't want to get too much into, uh, trying to pin, you know, or, or, or credit a species for, for their intelligence. Um, yeah. But at the same time, their ability, their ability to adapt to the Lewis gun. Yeah. yeah. Yep. There's something to be said of that, considering that in World War I, humankind, mankind, <laughs> continued to send rank after rank of lined individuals over the top. Yep. Knowing <laughs> that... The destructive nature of the Lewis gun was just that. I mean, it was, yeah. my goodness. So, yeah, so the, the birds are smarter than soldiers, which 
Having, having been a soldier, I can, I can see how that would be a case. Uh, uh, but it goes back into that, that the discussion of, do we call it discipline? Or do we just call it <laughs> blind ignorance? Uh, and, 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 I'm not even sure ignorance is the word, because if you're being shot at, naturally, your instinct is to yeah, take cover. cover. Yep. Right. Yep. But in Jeez. this case, and the, hey, hey, hold the line. No, sir. Nope, <laughs> I won't. Yep. I often see... Um, hear accounts of um, troops advancing, particularly on the first day of the Somme, and it's going forward in lines and the machine guns are just mowing them down. And people could see their mates falling, you know, getting closer and closer and closer and closer to them until it was their turn to get shot. And they just kept walking into it. That was, it's incredible to my mind how you can even do that. Right. Knowing that a bullet's coming your way and you still keep going. That's probably why I'm sort of, probably why i'm fascinated with world war one because yeah I just, I, just, I just can't figure how how normal human beings can just do that <laughs> it's incredible the amount of courage and sacrifice that would have taken to yeah be able to do something like that is unimaginable yeah yep yeah. it, it's yeah. It, it's crazy to turn off your fear to turn off your your personal sense of self-perseverance yeah um, yep. yeah incredible <laughs> so um, yeah. yeah well on a lighter note, thank you so much yeah. for that, Laurie. Um, no worries at all. It's my pleasure. That was a really good wrap-up of the, the EMU war as a whole. Um, yep, absolutely. You know, something that I've always uh, valued and love about Australian culture is our ability to, you know, make light and humour of even the worst situations. And, you know, in this case, we, we're dealing with the Great Depression and the discount ostriches or the emus, <laughs> whatever you want to call them, um, and rabbits, destroying food supplies and such like that, crippling the economy even further. Um, I know you mentioned it briefly about how um, Major Meredith kind of said, you know, that the emus kind of had an invulnerability of tanks. Um, yep. I just wanted to add like the rest of that quote in there because I, I just thought yep. it was hilarious. Um, he, he went and said, he's like, if we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. Um, <laughs> they can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. And I just thought that was gold. That's, that's brilliant. What an incredible <laughs> statement. Yeah. <laughs> So he must have he must have seen the funny side of it himself, I reckon. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Despite yeah. Australians going through what they were going through at the time, like the ability to pull jokes out like that, regardless yep. of what they were dealing with, is just I, yep. I really admire it. I, I think it speaks to military culture and and Warwick. We we talked about this briefly well before yeah. the recording that. Um, you've got to be able to find that humor and that, that cynicism and turn it into a, a coping mechanism to deal with some of the just even day to day, you know, and, and I think you're absolutely right here, Walla, that the way just in this quote alone, that major Meredith was able to, as a military man say, I've been given this task by my nation. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to divulge how I feel about this. But in the face of the adversary that we've been presented with, here are my thoughts, and you can read between the lines. And it's yep, yep. Oh, it's brilliant! It's brilliant, <laughs> and I applaud the man. I applaud the man because, regardless of what his success was prior to, 
he he's going to be judged. He's going to yep. be judged for his performance, and yep. it does not in any way define his character or his leadership ability yep. uh, as an officer in the Australian military. But yep. the 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 humble approach that he took here, um, absolutely brilliant. And the thing that that gets me about this is like he shouldn't have been the one to do this anyway. Like I mean, this should have been something for like the Department of Agriculture. Yes, like yes. the military shouldn't be the shouldn't be involved in this anyway. Yeah. I mean, who in the right mind goes? Let's just take out a certain population just by machine gunning them, like <laughs> this scorch the scorch earth method of just this like any whether orthologist or just any scientist in general for animal control. Like that's not how you're gonna do it. Yep. And yep. so this idea was almost gonna fail from the start and it's sad that like you know this is a national embarrassment and he has to be the face of this national embarrassment because like yep. he shouldn't have been here in the first place he sh this sh this should not have happened and yet yep. here he is but he he did the best he could with what he was given that he did yeah yep. he did the best uh, he could and I with mean, the resources it, it, he was given too exactly yeah it, it just uh, goes back into the to that to that Klauswitz quote uh quote that that you know, war is just the extension of politics or the accomplishment yep. of uh, political political goals by other means, and and yep. so often you see that with military leaders where their 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 parliament, their Congress says, "Hey, uh, things didn't work out the way we wanted. Uh, diplomacy didn't work. Yep. Here's our here here here's the end goal. Uh, here's your war aim. Figure it out. Yep. And yep. if you fail, um." That's on you. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> that's it. And, yep. and, and to go back to episode one, there's this wonderful quote from a Japanese diplomat where he stated that war was, and, and, and you know, and, and diplomacy, it was the bankruptcy of diplomacy. So that regardless yeah. of the outcome of war or the performance of the soldiers, yep. you know, the, the sailors, the airmen, War in, is, it, in and of itself, that's a failure of the elected officials. Yeah. The the best quote I've ever seen along those lines was um, during the, the fighting on Gallipoli, um, mm. the first Turkish counterattack, they just launched wave after wave of troops down the hill to try and push the Anzacs off, and they were just mown down in their thousands. Right. And over the coming days, those bodies started to rot, and the place was just stinking and unhealthy for everybody. Uh, and so a, tr a truce was um, organised so they could go mm. out and bury all these bodies. And, you know, the Turks would, you know, there'd be a, a line down uh, halfway across no man's land. The Turks would clear their half, the Australians would clear their half, and they weren't supposed to mingle, but they, they ended up mingling. And at one stage, a Turkish officer started uh, talking to an Australian officer, and they're standing around with all these mangled, rotten bodies around. And the Turkish soldier pointed to one lot of bodies and said, that's politics, pointed to another batch of bodies and said, that's diplomacy. And I oh. thought, that's that's just nails it 100%. Oh, my goodness. I can't remember his name. I wish I, wish I could, but um, yeah, just some random Turkish officer who just nailed the whole futility of, it, of the whole thing. It's incredible because when, 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 if you took off the uniform and you stripped these men and women down, at least modern day men and women, right? Yep. You strip these individuals down and you put them in civilian attire and you have yeah. them stand face to face. There's no grudge. 
No, none at all. I mean, after this, rage. after that truce, when um, yeah, Turkish and Australian soldiers kind of met each other for the first time, after that, they were almost sort of friendly, even right. though they were enemies. They'd, they'd throw each other packets of cigarettes and chocolates or whatever, and, you know, from trench to trench. And then when it was time to go and do some killing, they'd, they'd give it all, but there was no animosity or anything along those lines. No, because it, the, the, the war is not between the individuals pulling the trigger. No. On the front lines. It never yep. is. Never is. Yep. And they understand each other's struggle. And there's so much compassion. There's so much, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to get off track here and go on a tangent. <laughs> but, you know, that, yep. that, that's a discussion for another, for yep. another episode. But, oh, my goodness. 100, 100 or something years later, we're still doing it. <laughs> that's, that's the sad part. Thousands, thousands of years. Thousands yeah, yeah of years. thousands of years, really. Yeah. Even, even animals don't kill indiscriminately the way that, that we do, yeah, but yeah, we're the only ones that do it. <laughs> so. and, and, you know, and, and part of that can be, be, be seen here in the emu war where the emus, you know, they, they were able to disperse for survival. Yeah. Um, and in, in this case, they weren't able to fire automatic weapons back. <laughs> oh, thank God for that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> It's just uh, there are lessons to be learned from the way that the the emus reacted in this and this engagement, this this battle, this war. Survival was paramount, and it's, I think and it's a lesson that we could learn. Yeah, the emus didn't turn on themselves trying to to save their own lives. They goodness no. Yeah, <laughs> if only we could all if only we could all do that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess so. That's true. Yeah. Oh, she's yeah. coming around, Warwick. She's um, coming bring around. Okay, bring it okay. around. Just, just settle down. Come on. <laughs> Took one episode. One yeah. episode. Yeah. I am so proud of you and your journey. No, no. There's always room for growth. <laughs> Warwick, you're supposed to have my back. What are you doing? Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you're, you're turning on my birds, so, you know. His birds. His birds. <laughs> so we can all agree the Great Emu War was a devastating loss on Australia's part and quite unfortunately a national, uh, significant national uh, embarrassment. One that my international counterparts, but also now national counterpart, uh, continue <laughs> to shamelessly uh, remind and bully me about day after day. But on a more serious note, it's honestly a good reflection on, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier about Australian culture, like even in a time of crisis, how we're about how we're able to come together and make light of the situation um, was really important um, to me to highlight in this episode. And I just want to reiterate, you know, despite the the laughs that we had and all that kind of stuff, that as Warwick said earlier, uh, this does not in any way reflect the standard operational levels <laughs> of the Australian <laughs> Army. So please. <laughs> Please don't take that with you um, just because we lost to some <laughs> quote-unquote birds. Um, it doesn't reflect. We are good, honest. Honestly, we are, we are really, really good. We're a good bunch. Oh. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I'm going to back you up on that. I'm going to back you up, you know, because, you know, we, we, we discussed this on the server. Yeah. <laughs> probably probably daily to some extent, yeah. you know. Um and it's all done with love. It truly is. The Australian military, their sacrifices throughout history, and both uh, 
world wars and beyond, you can't discount. And and unfortunately, it, it often does go, I'm not going to say discounted, but it, it goes unobserved, underappreciated, yeah. underappreciated. And it's it's unfair. It's unfair yeah. because the, 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 again, the tenacity, the tenacity, the, the loyalty, the dedication that the Australian army has and the Australian military as a whole has fought with and so many global engagements yeah without so without many, the so sacrifices my god what would the outcome have been would be very exactly. some of the outcomes would be very different yeah. i i agree i agree i just want to say thank you again so much uh warwick for coming on today um just yeah. tying on to what spartan said um you know how our uh, contributions in military history is often undervalued and overlooked especially but yep. on your podcast um the australian military history podcast uh i believe you've done such an excellent job in kind of changing that and i i highly recommend for those that want to learn more about uh, australian military history to go give his podcast a listen um, yeah, thank, thank, thank you for that yeah. just let me know where to send the money and i'll, I'll send it now <laughs> Um, okay. If I, if I can interject here, yeah. So if if you all would like to give Warwick a follow, um, and I'm not sure what social media platforms outside of Instagram and your and your podcast that that you have. Yeah, that's uh, about it, actually. But, well, in that case, then uh, you guys can find Warwick as well as the Australian Military History Podcast at AMH Podcast on Instagram. Please, please. Uh, do give Warwick uh, a, a follow. Their, their, their link tree is available as, as well as uh, links to multiple podcast episodes. Give them a listen. They're well worth it. Uh, and you uh, had mentioned in, in previous talk prior to conversation on this podcast that you have a second podcast that you're going to be working on here in the near future that you're already yep. actually working on. So please, can you tell us and, and our listeners a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for, for inviting me to come on. I've really enjoyed the discussion today. It's been absolutely. It's, it's been a nice change from sitting here in the shed on my own, talking into a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm actually talking to other people. It's been great. So um, thank you for that. Um, yeah. The second podcast I'm going to be doing is, um, as I was saying before, I've been lucky enough to come into possession of the entire 12 volume history, uh, official history of Australia in the World War One, and so I'm going to be working basically from start to finish all the way through um, using the official history as a guide for chronology and what's going on, um, but also adding to it from um, uh, unit diaries and all that sort of stuff to sort of give a more a more in-depth, detailed account um, than what I do on the Australian Military History Podcast. So I hope to be launching that one sort of late this year maybe early next year depending on how we go so right looking forward to that one yeah no and come that time you know exactly we'll keep an eye out but also um warwick i can't i can't say it enough we'd love to have you back in the future for yeah. for australian history but even outside of australian history yeah. and um I, I'm, I'm looking forward to I, i'm glad to hear that you know yeah. i think we all are we're we're looking to uh forward to to a partnership to your contribution and, and uh, more than more than uh, available to to contribute to to your efforts as well. 
Yeah, oh, that'll be that'll be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, thanks thanks again for having me on. I really Please, really enjoyed it. It's, it's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you. This concludes the third episode of Hard Tech. We hope you enjoyed the discussion, and if you'd like to continue discussion or add to it, you can find us on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, Twitter, or Instagram, all available through our link tree found in the episode description. Join us next Wednesday for Episode 4, Women's Equality Day Special, Contributions in Military History. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hard tack dry.